Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the podcast. Now, this week, I'm, I know I'm, I'm going to say this every week, but this week I'm particularly excited because I've got someone that I've known for a long time professionally, but I've had the, um, I will say, pleasure of knowing him outside of work as well. So uh, we're joined by Mark Leather. So welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. So today I'm going to delve into, I've heard a lot of stories from Mark over the years, so hopefully he's going to divulge some of these. I am very disappointed he's not worn his FA Cup final, well, finalists uh, suit. The, uh, the, was it, what, what colour was it, Armani? Was it? It, it, was a, it was a nice, slightly off-white, creamy Armani suit. Clearly goes with his complexion. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad to see you've dressed up for the occasion today anyway. Absolutely. So first things first, Mark, how did you get into physio? Um, right. Well, as a young aspiring footballer, um, with no real um, class quality coordination and balance, played for a number of local teams, including the school. And while at school in the sixth form, I injured my knee and had a, a cartilage injury that for a 17-year-old was pretty rare then. And I didn't realise really how bad that, op- that injury was going to be. However, it rendered me out of action with a plaster of Paris cast uh, for two weeks. And then it still wasn't really right. I couldn't really play football for maybe five or six months. And then it went again. And then at that point, surgery was uh, selected um, to solve the problem. And so therefore, I became more uh, in, in vogue with the work of the physios at the local hospital in Bolton. Um, but I, wasn't under, I didn't really understand the difference between physiotherapists and maybe remedial gymnasts, which were the people that looked after me. Now that word, or those words, remedial gymnasts, you know, it's a bit of a, uh, an outdated term, but at the time they were probably more like sort of remedial instructors from the armed forces, more physically orientated, MSK, rehab, pool, gym scenario. And I was just thrown into the deep end as a patient in the gym, in the pool with these guys that I just thought were physios. Um, however, there was a slight difference that they were quite athletic looking little white Fred Perrier texture shirts, short cropped hair, looking pretty smart, navy blue trousers. And then in the next bit of the outpatient departments with white uh, coats, shirt and ties, little tunics and cubicles. And they were the physios that worked in there. And I thought, I'm not really sure about that. But the gym side of it, the active rehab and the, the pool areas, I, I really enjoyed uh, bizarrely being injured, in fact, by these people. And so... It was never a case of going to do physiotherapy. It was a case of, um, I will have a look at this profession, the remedial gymnast profession. But uh, as usual with me, slapdash at that time of my life, sloppy, didn't work, didn't really do any much with my A-levels, applied too late, didn't get in, needed a job. So I was thrown into the bank. Uh, Williams and Glynn's Bank in Bolton that's no longer there. Well, the bank's there, but the, the name's not there. And it was just a, a job. And I can remember vividly going in uh, first morning, suited and booted, and realised that I'd made a massive, massive mistake. This was never going to be for me. 
and I had that horrible gut-wrenching feeling in your tummy that you're just a duck out of water. If only I'd listened to teachers that had told me you need to pull your socks up, you need to work, you need to have a think and a plan. I didn't do any of that. And I was paying the price. And it was really it was the first time in my life probably I felt really down. Uh, but I knew that there was only one person that could really get you out of that mess, and that was me. So I made a beeline to apply again, get some experience at the hospital, um, do another GCSE in uh, human biology at night school, and viewed it really as, I wouldn't say getting out of the ghetto, but it was a little bit like that. I'm from Bolton, and Bolton's, you know, always fond memories of being in, brought up in that area. But I knew that my friends had left to go to uni, college, working jobs that they liked. And uh, I was lucky enough to get uh, offered a place. And to be honest, I'm, I've never, ever looked back and thought, oh, you know, I, I wish I'd done something else. But soon after qualifying, the two professions amalgamated. So remedial gymnast numbering, say, 500. Uh, joined the CSP with some complementary skills course and CSP numbering, I don't know, 20, 30,000 uh, practitioners at the time. So I did some of the physio uh, qualifications and became uh, a chartered physio, but I, uh, I never really um, was that interested in 90% of, of the profession, really. All right, okay. Just, just before we get into it, sorry to interrupt your style, just move your colour because it's, it's, it's catching on the microphone. I will do. How's that? I'll yeah. put it down. Uh, <laughs> it's a good look. It's a good look. <laughs> um, so you, you're not, you don't fall into that category of one of the many people who could have made it at football had, hadn't been for that injury. No. I was at best local level football and knew my position in terms of the, uh, the hierarchical structure of football and I was nowhere near that. Um, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed everything about football, from uh, watching football to playing football with your friends, playing for the school, uh, maybe refereeing football matches, which I did when I was younger. I enjoyed just being around football and footballers, and and it was um, it was the only real sport in my generation that you did in the winter, alongside rugby and cricket in the summer. That was it. Football, rugby, cricket, psh, nothing else existed in Bolton. Yeah, no, that's good. So when you say that it was basically 90% of it you weren't interested in, what was the 10% that you were? Bizarrely, I, uh, we had a strong training as a remedial gymnast in sort of uh, care of the elderly and, and more or less like dementia wards now where um, mental illness was, um, you know, uh, psychiatry or whatever we want to call it. Uh, there was a big emphasis uh, of our training in that because it was more sort of recreational exercise therapy um, that motivated and entertained and stimulated the brain cells of these people uh, from people that you know were sat in geriatric day hospitals or in care homes or from mental illness they were inpatients in long stay mental illness and I quite liked I quite like that and I surprised myself because it, you know, it, I didn't think I would do, but I, I quite liked it, and I got something from it, um, and uh, you know, sort of lived with me even to this day. You know, it's it was very um, feeling a little bit of humility and feeling humble that you you're really lucky that you um, 
are not in that sort of situation. As I'm sure physios working in an intensive care unit or physios working on a, um, you know, a palliative care uh, environment where you feel quite sad and I'm sure very close to these patients that they're real people, real families around them and, it, and it, it's quite a, an evoking um, emotion really if you're in that environment and I, I quite like the um, the mental illness units. I found that they, they were quite, you know, really friendly people, a bit of fun, and they work with the cynicism that maybe normal life's about. They haven't got that. No. Their normal world was whatever that normal world is for people suffering with those things. And uh, they, they, they made me laugh. We had some fun. And at the same time, you, you were offering, I think, a bit of a, a service for them, really. Mm. So if that was the case then, like how, what, where, how did the transition to sport happen? There was no transition needed for football because the, those sorts of footballers that I've worked, they're nearly all like that, living in their own world, happy little go-lucky people. So um, seriously, football, I didn't go into the profession to be working in football. I worked in it just to sort of help people with those sorts of orthopaedic sports related maybe injuries but I never thought of football until I was at uh, in my final year and I thought I don't really know much about sports injuries because you didn't really see them in the NHS you didn't see those only those where surgery is required fractures dislocations major trauma and so you didn't see a lot of the soft tissue ligament injuries and muscle injuries you didn't really see those so I thought I'm going to go up to a local club in, just outside of Wakefield called Osset. And I went to a team called Osset Town. I, I didn't drive. Uh, so I paid me money to go up on a bus twice a week. And I've just made myself available to look at training injuries and advise these guys. And then found it quite strange that they were actually getting better, some of them. Um, which gave me even more confidence that perhaps... Perhaps I do know a little bit. <laughs> I have learned something. And so that was when I first thought I wouldn't mind, you know, getting involved in that. And then following that, um, I went to uh, Stoke-on-Trent and worked in a rheumatology centre in Burslem. That At the time, um, <clears throat> the footballers from Port Vale were using the hospital uh, for treatment. They didn't have a chartered physio. Uh, they just had a guy who did a little bit in the club, but they came up to the hospital and some of the physios treated them. I didn't actually treat them. I was in a different department, but they used to come up. And um, I was asked, would I be interested in treating these guys in my lunch hour? So I said, yeah, I'll have a go at that. And what started off as an hour at lunchtime, you know, one or twi once or twice a week became you know, I'll be back down to the club, which is only two minutes from the ground at four o'clock. And I'll, when I finish work and I'll do an hour and a half there, then would I travel with the team? And of course, you know, at that age with no experience really, um, um, I did that. In between times from Osset to Port Vale, I'd, I'd, I'd also been lucky enough to do a little bit of work at Leak Town uh, with a guy called Mick Pedgick, who's still a good friend of mine now. And those that don't know Mick Pedgick, he was a, he was a top draw footballer. Um, very fit, very strong uh, fullback that played for Stoke City, Everton, England. You know, he was, he was a, and he's a good man. And um, that sort of got me a little bit of a way into Port Vale as well. Uh, and then I, 
I've, I sort of did both jobs, worked in the NHS and helped Port Vale out and basically ran that little department, which I say little department, it was me and nobody else. So it was a very small department, really. And um, from there, moved on into another couple of jobs with the uh, NHS back in, uh, in Doncaster, actually, for 12 months, while my wife to be was working in Rotherham and uh, I got a call from Alan Smith the Sheffield Wednesday physio just to say would I um, help some cover for a month covering match days mainly um, due to him having ankle surgery and the manager at the time was Howard Wilkinson and so I did that and that sort of gave me um, um, a good person to in the football context, obviously, to give me a reference, both Alan Smith and Howard Wilkinson, which they did when I eventually took my first job uh, in football at Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, and in those days, it was they were just advertised in the daily press. Can you believe that now? You know, Daily Mail, physio required, first team physio, Brighton Football Club. Well, that's what they did. And I thought, yeah. throw it in, throw the application in. Big work saying that. He said he saw his, when he went to, I think it was Sheffield Wednesday, he, he saw the advert. It's mental to think of that. It, it is. But what I would say is that while at Doncaster, um, what, and this is true, I, e I emailed, I didn't email, I posted 92 letters with a stamped dressed envelope to all football league clubs asking... Uh, would they be interested in, you know, employing me? And I had 14 replies and all 14 said, no, 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 no interest in that, whether, you know, who are you? And that was it. So I think I then obviously used Howard and uh, Alan's uh, experience at Sheffield, um, bits of Port Vale and John Rudge gave me um, uh, a reference or two and Mick Pedgick. And I called upon those people uh, on my application form to, to Brighton Hove Albion. So although I think I was young, which I was, but I'd, I'd have, in real terms, three experiences of first-team football from the old first division down into, I think it was Division 2, certainly Brighton were in the old Division 3 and, and Port Vale were the old Division 4. So I got a reasonable experience. And people, always this thing in my networking, doesn't matter what, how good you are, how bad you are, if people are voting for you and giving you help up the ladder, then sadly, there is still a lot of that around. But I think I deserve that in my own way because I put myself out at places like Osset Town for no money, mm. going up on a bus, putting, you know, and so you, you did a little bit of an apprenticeship, whereas some physios just jumped from straight from union to Arsenal Football Club or... or Everton or whatever it is, you know, I didn't do that. I worked my way up, up the ladder, really. Mm. Sorry, Mark, just take, you have to take that, that zip up off. Keep catching. Well, I better not show that. No. <laughs> don't want you to do it. Don't want you to do it. Don't being advertised. <laughs> uh, so when you got the, the, the Brighton job then, so I guess you, you just have to move down there then? Yes, we'd already moved to Devon. Um, to get married and I got a job in a, an Exeter hospital um, these jobs were only 12 months you know each one Doncaster 12 months um, 
sort of uh, Port Vale really just put more than 12 months in Stoke on Trent and so this was my third sort of NHS post and then well, I'd only been doing that maybe four or five months when this job came up and we left um, uh, Brighton, sold the house overnight really and then moved into a place in, in Worthing which mm. is um, you know um, a little bit cheaper than living in Brighton because I didn't look at the cost of housing. <laughs> I just thought they'd pay me a couple of grand a year more, which was which was big money in those days. <laughs> and then I thought, heck, property is really expensive. But at a time when interest rates were 14 and 15%. Imagine mm. that now. That's crazy. You know, it was a lot of money, yeah. Mm. So when you go into like these departments, you've written to all of the football league clubs. What, what setups did they have? When you go into Brighton, what do they have? Brighton, to be fair, were reasonably well equipped with, um, at the time, reasonably well equipped with a nice treatment room, three beds, proper ice machine, um, a little bit of electrotherapy, which was used at the time a bit more than maybe it's used now, the, the, an ultrasound machine, maybe a bit of an infrared lamp that was used for just warming things up and then using your hands to treat them, whatever it was, and a nice gym, small gym but with a bit of free weights that seem to be actually out of vogue. But as we know now, and we always realise, free weights can be better than machine weights at times in certain situations. So um, we had a reasonable setup. And things like, a simple thing like uh, the old team bath, you know, probably a disaster for infection and catching bugs and everything else. But what a tool that was to get your injured players in there for a bit of hydrotherapy. Although living in Brighton, we had a big hydrotherapy called the English Channel. You know, get them down on the beaches, get them into the sea, all weather, which was a bit of a, uh, you know, there was a few dissensions about getting in the water, but so you great. Did you yeah, yeah. Yep. Did that maybe two or three times a week for 20 minutes, half an hour. Simple things of standing in the pool, standing in the, in the, in the, in the sea, with the water up to the maybe the waist, and then just the you know the sand giving way and giving them something to catch and throw and balance and coordination. It was a great proprioceptive tool for balance and coordination. Plus, the cold um, was helping to reduce some of the inflammatory process and the punishment of doing that clearly de deterred people from being injured in the first place. Maybe. So this was something for injured players only. It wasn't like a team building thing for the whole squad. No, it was in, it was in, it was for injured people that probably the coach used to think it was for those that were debating whether to declare their injury that would render them out of training and playing for a few days. If that was what you had to do, somebody would decide maybe I'm not going to do that because I've no intention of freezing my socks off in the English Channel three afternoons a week. Mm. But for me, it worked well. And actually, even at clubs like Liverpool, um, further down the line, you know, the the, um, the team bath was used, you know, far easier to use that team bath than going, than at the time we didn't have a pool in the training ground. So it was easier to use the water uh, in the pool, at, in the dressing room, changing rooms uh, at Anfield than it was to go and find a local gym and pool down the road that really, did we need that? By the time I've driven over there, I might as well go to the stadium. And that's what we did. Mm. So people like Steve Harkness, a double fracture of his 
of his lower limb with internal fixation. He spent quite a lot of time uh, in that in that water environment, and um, it didn't do him any harm. And it's not done many people any harm. Um, but clearly, you know, Liverpool don't need to go into a team bath that's no longer there. You know, the 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 training ground and the and the stadium is completely different. So, so after Brighton then, what, what was next? What was next was financial ruin living in Brighton. Um, interest rates at 15%. And clearly, uh, Mrs. Leather was very interested in, um, you know, forming a family. And those that know, as you do, uh, Andy, uh, the three lads, you think, what a bad move that was. And I agree. It was a bad move. However, um, to start a family, we couldn't uh, afford to buy a house. We were living in a flat. For in many ways, I did enjoy Brighton. I was very sad the other day to to uh, find out that the ex-chairman Greg Stanley had died, who uh, was a real, you know, an old-school football director, chairman, a real top-quality, funny guy. Uh, fantastic bloke and um, you know he he sadly died the other week but I enjoyed my time at, at Brighton but we knew we had to really move back north to uh, the cheaper um, options of buying a house which we did and for the same money we, we bought ourselves a nice three four bedroom house and started the family you know and so what what, what the job that you moved back up for well a a temporary job, really, at um, Chorley Hospital, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed that. Those that know the hospital, it's a bit different than when I was there, but it was a, still a family cottage-type hospital, working in the gym, working in the uh, outpatient departments. Um, and I was lucky enough to then uh, be asked to go to Preston North End. Um, and... I think I knew that really that's where I, I wanted to be, was in football full time. So I took the job at Preston North End and um, uh, stayed there for probably two years, maybe a bit more than that, and then went to Burnley. And then received quite a lot of stick from the local press in Preston. A nice guy, uh, he dropped me in it a little bit, Brian Ellis, the reporter. I think I did say it was a bigger job, meaning that the job was bigger in terms of salary and conditions and everything else. Not the club. I didn't say. Preston fans listening, I never said that. I didn't say Preston were a bigger club than Burnley. Um, so I think Preston were probably, the supporters, quite happy to um, see me go, which is not nice because I'm not that bad a guy. And uh, I went to Burnley. And I, I, I would say, people have asked me, you know, what's your, what's your, what was your favourite club? Where did you enjoy it most? And I, I still think Burnley was the, was, was the time of my life uh, and the club where I really enjoyed myself there. And I was really sort of uh, proud to work for that club because they were a proper club. When I say that, your stewards suited and booted with club ties, you know, players and staff and family looked after on reserve matches in the evening, you know, hot food. I mean, come on. I hope Boris Johnson's listening to this. Free food, hot food for everyone. 
you know, there was none of this universal credit. It was fantastic. Little, uh, but they did and travelled well. You know, we stayed overnight in proper hotels. It, it was a, it was they had, they believed that that was the best way to prepare the, the players at Burnley Football Club for first team football. Mm. Um, it didn't stop me driving a minibus for the reserves and getting back from Grimsby at three o'clock in the morning and rolling back into Turf Moor at eight o'clock in the morning. You know, they didn't get preferential treatment, but your reward in the first team was they looked after you. And uh, I, I liked it at Burnley. I really did. What was the division that they were in then? Well, they'd been... Uh, they'd left the championship, as it would be now, into, into Division 1, which was Division 3. And so um, they were in the same division as Preston um, at the time. But I think anyone that's been to Gawthorpe, uh, uh, the training ground at Burnley, will realise that it's always been a fantastic training facility. When I was there, it was probably a bit dated from the Bob Lord, Jimmy Addison days of the 70s. But you could see that the pitches and the facilities were all going to, you know, there, were, there was something about them. It was a proper training ground, really. And uh, I thought it's a good environment for me to, uh, to work in. And I thought they'd got a real chance of getting out of that league, which they did. And so <clears throat> I think in my first season, maybe first full season, we got promotion through the playoffs into the championship at which true to form leather deserts the ship and leaves to go to Liverpool. Um, but my last match for Burnley was the playoff final at Wembley. So we win the game and it was, a, it was a nice feeling to sort of leave the club on that, that sort of note rather than sadly other clubs where you've been relegated, which is mm -hmm. always bad. But, you know, um, it's part and parcel of life, the mm -hmm. good with the bad. But um, yeah, so yeah, you know, I enjoyed Burnley, good club. So, so you've got Burnley then. So then you say you go to Liverpool. So how does that transition happen? How do you find out about the job? No idea how it happened. Uh, well, I know how it happened, but I don't know why they employed me. Um, but again, it was I, while at Burnley and Preston, I did a lot of work for the FA in the summer, uh, lecturing on their treatment of injuries courses. So I'd networked a few people on the medical and sports science uh, department at the FA and the guy who ran it, Alan Hodson, um, who's a top guy, you know, he trained me at college. He was a lot, somebody I'd known for a long time and he, he was a real, really lovely fellow. Very uh, friendly, very, um, you know, just down to earth guy. And he said, look, he said I'd had a phone call from, I think it was Phil Boisma, who was working for Liverpool for Graham Soonest that they wanted a physio to come in but they needed a chartered physio to, 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 to front it up rather than um, the present format that they got, which was following the old boot room way. You know, Ronnie Moran was the, the physio trainer, Bob Paisley, Joe Fagan, Roy Evans, there's no one with a first aid qualification or any other qualification. It's just that that's what they did. Packed in clean and became the trainer. And which was the inverted commas of physio. So I think Graham Soonis was the uh, was the person that really decided that we need to make this club much more up to speed of modern day football. And I never had the pleasure of working with him, um, but I think he tried possibly in his own 
admission that he tried to change things too quickly. And for some people, that was far too much to do. And there was a little bit of uh, politics and a bit of dissension and, re and um, restraint from players to, to do what was asked of them. So he had a tough job. Results didn't go well. Surprise, surprise, if players down tools. And he went. So I only went for my first interview, um, which was, I think, the week after he'd been sacked, actually. And it was Roy Evans who interviewed me with uh, Mark Waller, the club doctor, and Tom Saunders, who was a, a gentleman. You know, Tom Saunders was, you know, the old scout, ex-teacher, you know, lovely family, uh, lovely guy. And um, I had that interview in January, I think, or early February. And then I didn't get any... No, uh, oh, sorry, did I get a second interview? Maybe I did. Maybe I got a second interview a, a month later, but certainly from the end of February through till April, nothing. Not heard anything. I thought, it's and I didn't ring God, I didn't contact the club. I thought that, you know, you can't do that. That's Liverpool Football Club. You know, you can't, if they want you, they'll let you know. I wonder when they're going to let me know. And it went on and on and on. And then just as I was thinking, that's it, you know, that's the way it was. And um, I had a call from um, Mark Waller, uh, the club doctor, to say that they want to offer you the job. Um, and then the manager wants to just ring to, to have a chat with you. So fine, brilliant. So I didn't tell anybody. And uh, I was waiting for the call. And then the call came through. Of course, Roy Evans on the phone. Now, anyone that knows Roy Evans and hear him speak, you've no idea what he's saying. He talks so quick, you know, broad scouts accent. I had no idea what he was on about. So I'm going, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what he said. Put the phone down, really knew I said, did he go? I said, well, I think, I'll, I think he's, he was okay with it. And, uh, you know, what's, what's the terms and conditions? I said, I have no idea. I've just said, yeah, yeah. So it, it was a crap salary, needless to say. Um, and I got the final. Uh, you know, um, what's the contract through from Peter Robinson? And I started in the middle of June. And um, so, was, yeah, for that, Ben, in terms of salary, like what was the salary like in general for a fifth year working in sport? Well, it was probably going to uh, from Burnley to Liverpool, probably what's the word, two and a half times my salary, really. So in today's equivalence, I have no idea what that would be. For it, but that's part of football, really, is that um, there is no structure. It's, what, it's just what someone's prepared to pay you. There's no, you think, I'm, I'm worth this. They'll tell you what they think you're worth. And then you might have a bit of bartering. So from club to club, it could be quite embarrassing, really, for doing the same job. You're being paid twice, three times more than somebody else, which is, you know, a bit naughty, really. Um, but the difference between the National Health Service and the football club in the lower leagues is probably no difference. So these people that think coming into football, everybody's got pots of money, forget that. You know, if you're starting off in the NHS, it's the same as a teacher starting off 22, 23, 24,000. Then in the lower divisions, you can expect to earn that and work maybe three times, I wouldn't say harder, because everybody works hard, but commitment time evenings and weekends and Christmas days and Boxing Days, it's not pretty pleasant mm -hmm. when you pick your, 
pick your pay packet up at the end of a month. But the carrot is move up the ladder, move up the ladder, and usually it means better terms and conditions. And um, you know, like anybody else, players included, if you the higher up you go, probably the more money you learn. Yeah. So I've had it both ways. Not so much money, and you know, clearly more than I would earn. You know, uh, in the physiotherapy profession elsewhere. Mm. So you go into Liverpool, and that is a time when they're probably having a bit of a transitional period after Sooners. So they've got the likes of John Barnes there. Was Dix there? Ruddock, all those guys. Yeah. What happened was the the first the the first day was pre-season. No one was in. It was a week before pre-season started. So I just rolled up. No one met me. He just rolled up. Coaches weren't there. Pardon? This is at Melwood. Melwood, yeah. Gate man on the door, opens the gate. In you come, we're expecting you. Right, off you go in. Nobody there. Coaching staff all gone. All on holiday. How old are you so, at this stage, Mark? 25. No, I wasn't. I was 30. 25 at Brighton and 30 by the time I took Liverpool. But 30, you know, you're thinking you're old at 30. Still wet behind the ears. A little bit more streetwise with footballers, but um, still, you know, it's a different, there was a different world I'm entering. And so I'm thinking, there's nothing here. There's a treatment room and there's no documentation, there's no real records. It was a bit of an eye opener. And uh, suddenly the, I'm setting the scales right because that's one of the things first day pre season will weigh the players. So I'm setting the scales up and calibrating them and in walks this bloke that I thought that's Neil Ruddock that and he came and introduced himself full of life bouncing along without asking just said are those scales up to working and I said yeah he said great just what I need so he strips off then into his little sloggies jumps on and then said they're not right they're way out way out <laughs> I said they're not way out they're bang on and showed him, put a two kilogram on weight onto the uh, scales, two kilo. Took it off, five kilo weight, five kilo. Five and two, seven. They're working. So I knew what he'd left in May, five weeks earlier, maybe six weeks, because I'd got the record that just a few players that had been weighed, he was one. Surprise, surprise. We better check his weight. And his weight had gone up by two stone. Two stone and three pounds. In five or six weeks, which was a big shock to me. I thought, God, flipping heck. And um, he was on the radar, which a week later, obviously, the manager was in. And he said, you've only one injured, two injured players, maybe three, actually. Mulby, Michael Thomas... Mark Wright, um, but all these are with you. Those three plus another 10 others, 12 others. And I said, well, I said, they're not injured. He said, no, but the surplus to requirements at this moment in time until told otherwise. So we got a list of who's who, you know, Don Hutchinson, Julian Dix, Mark Walters, Nigel Clough, Paul Stewart. The list goes on. 
Mulby, as we've said, Mark Wright in that list. Ooh, it was like a who's who. I'm thinking, how am I going to cope with this? Um, I said, what do you want me to do with them? He said, anything you want. He said, I don't care what they do, but they need to be worked. I said, what about afternoons? He said, they can do that as well. So I thought, that, that's better for me because in the morning, I've got the fit lads to look after. And then as soon as they've finished their early second session in the afternoon, I can concentrate on this lot. So they were in all day, you know, and that caused a bit of a, 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 a bit of unrest in the camp um, because they were having to stay all day, which they'd never done, and they didn't like that. So um, I thought, right, this is going to be quite difficult. So I thought... Um, I thought, I wonder who's the biggest hitter of that group of people. Apart from the three that were injured, Mark Wright, Michael Thomas, and um, maybe Jan Mulby. I thought, who is, the, who, who is the biggest hitter? And so I was told, and I thought probably he is, Jan Mulby. But he is injured. But he's not, he wasn't so bad that he couldn't work hard, but he wasn't fit enough to train with the players. So I thought, right, um, I'm going to do something in an afternoon straight after lunch that will be for him. And I looked at him because he's a, he, he'd have to be. And somebody asked me just, just the other day, who's the best footballer that you've worked with? And I think there's a few at Liverpool, to be honest, because that time there was a few quality footballers, some coming to the end of the career, some beginning the career. But he would have to be in the top two without a shadow of a doubt. Um, what do you base that on then? What his football ability, his his his, his uh, positional sense, his ability to to see a pass. You know why run? If you know Jan Mulby, you know why <laughs> he doesn't want to run. So let the ball do the work. So he'd get that ball, and almost as the ball's coming to, him, he knows where it's going, and other players would know where it's going. In, in that in that situation and he'd sling a pass very strong very strong upper body so you wouldn't get near him really you'd have your arm out there or an arm out there giving him just that split second to be able to uh, do what he wanted to do with the ball and then he'd jog into position and nowadays what do we say come in between the lines you know come on DNA you know flipping complicated messages, complicated words. It's a simple game. False number nine. Well, he's not a number nine, then, is he? He's something else. Make another number up. It, 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 honestly, it drives me potty. But that's what they did. They just came in between the banks of four, if you like. So somebody, he would just mosey in, in between a couple of players. And then he'd, he'd, he'd get the ball 20 yards up the field. He's not run anywhere. He's walked or jogged. And then from there, he'd either score a goal from outside the penalty area or he'd fed a pass in the, back, in the box and it'd be Rush, McManaman, Fowler, goal. That was it. So, but he was overweight, unfit and thought, right, he, but he's strong, naturally strong. And I think in a previous life, your uh, company uh, sold me an isokinetic machine many moons ago and we had that in the gym, and he virtually broke the machine. 
with the with the maximum torque that you could apply on this uh, computer generated machine and he would do that just for the hell of it on his knee quad extension and knee flexion he was phenomenally clean then he just wasn't like fit basically he wasn't fit for purpose he wasn't fit to play in the Premier League at the time. He was no longer fit to do that, but he'd still got a football brain. John Barnes adapted his game and he was fit to play that role because he wasn't like Jan Mulby. But for me, Jan Mulby wasn't a lost cause. You needed to make it interesting for him because he used to, well, he told me, it's in his book, uh, in one of his books that he wrote, uh, you know, he sent me a book and, it, and, and, it, and it's in that. that. What he was saying was that you gave him, uh, it became enjoyable the pre-season that he had with me because he knew that everything that was being done was directly linked to helping him on the football pitch. But if you're asking him to run 20 round times around a football pitch and doing a bleep test and all this caper, it was absolutely of no use to you whatsoever because he wouldn't do it. Mm. And neither was it that important, really, to be put in the big scheme of things. Yeah. And so I asked Roy Moran, I said, do you know a garage round from the training ground? you know, near the training ground. He said, what do you need a garage? I said, I need a, a couple of tyres. He said, what's wrong with your car? I said, nothing. Well, what do you need the tyres for? I said, I need, I could do with a, like a, a van tyre, a lorry tyre, and a, and a, you know, uh, uh, maybe a tractor tyre. He said, what for? I said, because I, I think what I'm going to do is get some Mulby to do some running with the, um, against the tyre, right, with a rope, couple of towels around his waist and he can drag the tyre box to halfway line something like that when are you doing that I said well as soon as you get me the tyres I said it'll be one afternoon he said they'll be here tomorrow they'll be here tomorrow we can't wait for this gets his mate tyres tyres are up delivered from Elwood in the morning tractor tyre lorry tyre what time are you starting and I said, as soon as you finish it, we'll be done 10 minutes early and we'll get our, we'll, we'll be we'll positioned on the pavilion steps. We can't wait to see you do this. Clearly waiting for me to fall, waiting for Mulby to descent and stand up to me and then see what I'm going to do. And I told him, um, Jan Mulby, that look, you need to specific pro. This is like not rocket science now. And it wasn't rocket science to me then. It was just making training more individual to the player, given his history, given the, what he is, his position and how he plays in that position. What does he really need to do? So it's not everybody having to do the same programme. It's easy for coaches to do that. But if it's making you a better player, I'm not sure. And so I told him what you're doing. So you won't be doing six. Six box to halfway lines and maybe six box to box. But you'll be having a rest in between each one and you're on the lorry tyre, dragging that around your waist. And as I said, it's really good as a resistance for power, explosive power. You build that in, it'll be far easier than running when you come to run on your own, if you're trained in that way a little bit. Basically that, you know, it's just a way of doing it. Nowadays we've got weighted vests nowadays and we've got sled pulls, but we didn't have them then. So how can I form a bit of resistance? And I thought, right, that'll do me. And so he did that. And it was like a cricket match. It was like the pavilion, full. Lords MCC, all the members are out. You've got laundry ladies, 
canteen staff, the girls are out. All the players, Mulberry with a toe. And they're waiting for him not to do it. And I'm thinking, oh God, if he suddenly starts, you know, being awkward now, then I'm I'm gonna be embarrassed a bit by this because what can I tell him? Not a lot. So what happened? He did it. And he did it. And he he did it all, six and six. And obviously it's tough that. And he, he did it, he didn't moan. I went home into work next morning. He said, When are we doing that again? And I said, we're going to do that in another three or four days. Not, you know, it's not silly, just a couple of days a week, along with other things in between to do other aspects of fitness or work that was applicable to him. And he never moaned. And I worked with him for, I don't know, maybe actually, he, he was only working with the team for two matches before the season started. He played a 45 minutes and I think a 60 minute game. And then he was straight into the team first match of the season. And I think we played Crystal Palace away. We won six one, and he was he scored, and he must have had four assists. The problem is, he did that for a few weeks, and then slowly but surely, you know, it, 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 when I say the spots of a leopard never changes, his injury history and the age he was at, lifestyle probably caught up a little bit with him. Um, but you know that was Liverpool's first team. And then he, he came back into the team and out of the team and, and he got another two seasons at the club. And um, I think he went to Norwich on loan and, you know, his, his career moved into coaching. Um, it was Kidderminster where he did, but um, he, the first thing he did when he took the manager's job, he rang me and said, can you send me some of the drills that we did? He said, they're like, that's what we need to do here. We don't want... And, and I was pleased that he'd done that. You know, people like Mark Wright, again... You know, that could be, um, it could have been a bit awkward at times with, with some staff. But I think he always knew that whatever I was telling him was um, for his own benefit, really. He might not have agreed with it, but underneath that, I think he realised that you were, you were honest. You were trying to tell him uh, what he needed to do to, to get fit. And he, he was, that pre-season, he was pretty quick. Uh, pretty fit getting back into uh, full fitness and uh, he got back in the England team you know in the same season so I was pleased when you know you feel proud when those things sort of happen uh, if it goes the other way then obviously you reflect on what you could have done maybe I shouldn't have done that maybe I should have done this but I think when things go well there's usually a reason why you're recommending things yeah um, yeah, I mean, we were actually just talking about Mark Wright and saying that he had that renaissance and he came back and was really, really good in that sort of mid, mid-90s period. Yeah. And he sort of developed as a player on there. Just, I'll ask you one more question before we wrap up this, um, this half. We're going to have to come back and do another one because there's, uh, there's a lot more. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, but, so when you take on those players then, so the massive personalities, all of those are really big names, big investments. What is their attitude like? Have they been told that they're not they're not part of the plans. Well, um, you, you know, some of them probably have, uh, and most of them can read the writing on the wall. Um, and I think they get a feeling, I think at any level of football, and you go back to your own school, when the school teacher's leaving you out of the team um, or out of a squad, that's not a good sign. I can remember at Preston North End, you know, John McGrath was a manager. And uh, they'd signed Frank Worthington. 
what a legend, Sir Frank Worthington. Um, but he was 39, even then. But he was a fantastic player. And um, I can remember the manager telling him, or thinking, how do I tell him he's not playing? And obviously he didn't, until it came to the team sheets. And then they leave the team out, and he's not in the team. And then he came to naming the subs, and he said, uh, he said, I'll have to watch my language here because it's a bit sweary. And he, he said, right, he said, today, Frank, he said, you're a sub. But remember, you're not just a sub, you're an effing good sub. <laughs> and that was his arm round him to make it a little bit laugh and a joke, but something serious. The following week, Worthington gone. Right. Off to Stockport County. Not because John McGrath got rid of him. Frank would have gone in and said, not doing that. I'm being, with all respect, I'm not being a sub for Preston North. Yeah. And, and that's how it works. And I think some coaches let themselves down with the way in which they do deal with players. Um, but that's a little bit for life, isn't it? Where, you know, you should really expect to, to deal with people how you would want to be dealt with yourself in anything in life and sometimes you have to be the bearer of bad news and that if you're not prepared to put up with that and deal with it properly you shouldn't really be a coach you know what I mean you shouldn't really be in our job as a physio if you're giving them bad news you've got to give the you've got to have the bad news you know as one guy Mark Gillette you know chief medical advisor at the Premier League uh, in his previous life as a working in clubs, he said, I want to employ you. And, he's, and I said, what for? And he said, I want you to be the bad news monitor. And that was serious, that he was, he was probably sick and tired of giving bad news to coaches. And, uh, you know, Mark will do that. Get him in. He doesn't mind giving bad news. Needless to say, I didn't do it. But I think you've got to be careful because if you, do, you know, they, they have to play for you. And, if they don't play, if they don't want to play for you, they don't respect you, which is a different thing to liking you. And if they respect your decision, they're not going to believe that they shouldn't be left out of the team. But if you do it in the right way, I'm sure that most people uh, understand that. And it's a, it's a fact of life. You, you can only pick 11 players and there's 25 in a squad, 26 in a squad. You know, it's not, it's, it's a numbers game, but, I always think that you, you know, as a as a as a coach, you're not leaving players out if they are performing every week. Why would you leave them out? They're obviously not performing every week, or they're not doing what you want them to do. But that's a separate issue of where you're recruiting people to do something that they didn't do that at the previous club where they were the world beater. They didn't play like that. You're asking them to play a different game, and they can't do it. That's not the player fault. That's probably that you shouldn't have signed him to do that because we call that a square peg in a round hole, and that very rarely works in the long term. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So we'll we'll wrap up there for this one, but there is loads more to talk about. So uh, okay, well we'll uh, arrange another one. We'll do that. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Whenever you want, give us maybe next week or something. I can get some time for you. Sounds good. All right, pal. Cheers, Mark.